0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Dr. Judith Mayotte to the show. Dr. Judy Mayotte is an internationally esteemed humanitarian, teacher, author, and Emmy Award-winning television producer. She is decorated with numerous honors from institutions across the globe for her inspiring work on behalf of refugees suffering the daily horrors of endless war and catastrophic climate change. She has worked in the U.S. State Department as a special advisor on refugee issues and policy, and as a visiting professor for the Desmond Tutu Peace Center in Cape Town, South Africa. Judy received her doctorate in theology and an honorary doctorate in humane letters from Marquette University, of which I am also an alum. And it is through Marquette that I have the great honor of making her introduction. With so much to learn about her life and journey, I cannot wait to begin. Welcome to the show, Judy.
1: Thank you very much, Nicholas.
0: Oh, Judy, it is such an honor to have you here. As I referenced, it was Marquette that put us in contact with each other And I'm so thankful for them doing that because then I was introduced to your life story, which I can't wait for you to unveil for myself and the listeners. But to be honest, it's a reintroduction, as you and I just (laughs) discovered off mic, that I took your class at Marquette University in 2001
1: which is really remarkable that here we are, 20 years later, talking together.
0: It's amazing, I was delighted. It turns out that I took your international human rights law course, and it is absolutely a joy to be on the phone with you again. I love that this connection has happened. Well, Judy, I just wanna get into your story, but first, as you know, I gotta know what you had for breakfast this morning.
1: I had a piece of multigrain toast, a glass of orange juice, and a cup of tea.
0: Oh, you're a tea drinker. I am. What kind of tea? Is it black tea?
1: This morning it was a turmeric tea with a green tea.
0: Okay, so the green gets you a little caffeine. Yes. Do you need? You don't need a lot of caffeine in your day.
1: No, I don't need a lot of caffeine. I like to wake up in the morning I have the sun coming in my windows at about 5.30 or so, and I kind of don't rouse at that moment, but generally also in the morning, I swim laps.
0: Judy, that's extraordinary. You do not wait. Early bird gets the worm. Have you been doing that your whole life? Your story indicates that you have an enormous well of energy.
1: I like to get up in the morning. I love to wake up and see what's going to come in the day. It's a wonderful feeling to know that there's another day ahead.
0: Yeah. Oh, Judy, let's just dive right in, okay? Yes. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life?
1: I thought about that, and I think there's probably two situations. I grew up in a Christian home, Protestant Christian home, via my mother, not my father so much. And I remember going to Hillside Christian Church in Wichita, Kansas. And who I remember the most is Mrs. Lamb in Sunday School. And Mrs. Lamb was a rather old-fashioned woman, I guess I would say. Her dress, her hats, all of that looked rather old-fashioned to me. But then I was just about 8, nine, ten years old when I had her. But Mrs. Lamb knew more about the Holy Land and its geography and brought that all to life. And I guess brought New Testament teachings to life because it was the life of Jesus. And it was really a Jesus who walked the dusty roads of Galilee. And I don't remember many other Sunday school classes than Mrs. Lamb's Sunday school class when I was a, a child growing up. But she really made an impression on me. Used maps, used very earthy, practical stories, the life of Jesus. And I've never forgotten her throughout my life. I think the other situation was that When I was in first grade, even though we were a Protestant family, my parents sent me to boarding school, to a Catholic boarding school across town in Wichita, Kansas. And even though I don't think of the religious aspects of it, I think more of the nuns who taught us, because nuns, of course, were very strange to me as was Catholicism, but Catholicism didn't mean much to me at that time.
0: Judy, can you tell me about what year this is?
1: Okay, I was born in 1937, so six years later when I was in first grade.
0: 43, okay.
1: Yeah, 47, 46, 45 for Mrs. Lamb and 43, 42 for the nuns.
0: Well, I didn't want to derail you too much from the nuns because I know that's another enormous part of your story. Clearly you had an affection for the nuns there was a reverence that you were keying into at that age.
1: I suppose so. I mean I just did what everybody else did, but I did love being there. And you know it also was during World War II. Wow. And um I learned we all learned to knit there. And what we did was we knitted squares so that they could put them together as blankets and send them overseas. So that was kind of the first service aspect of my life, I suppose, of giving beyond myself. I just liked it there. I liked the nuns. I liked the school. But then I was put back into the public school in probably third grade or so.
0: What was it like for you to go back to public school after having been at Catholic school?
1: I was glad to be at home again. Did you have any siblings? I do, and they all went through public school. I was the only one that was sent to boarding school, and it was because I was such a pill. (laughs) Wow, amazing.
0: (laughs) At that young of age, they were like, whoa, four years old, we got to get her out of here. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing, Judy. What an indicator of your travel-savvy lifestyle ahead, right?
1: You know, I think I'm very independent and very determined to do what I feel is the right thing to do for me.
0: <laughs> wow. At what age did you become aware of the constrictions that a, a woman would be running into in society at that time?
1: Um, you know, Nicholas, I'm not sure I ever ran into that. Hmm. And that that's been a strange phenomenon for me. I don't ever feel like I have been restricted. I've just kind of plowed ahead and done what I want to do. I do feel that at the time, I didn't think too much about it. I mean, I, I don't think I was too thoughtful for a long time in my life as far as restrictions or social justice or, or anything like that. I just kind of went ahead. And I think that I was not a real student at the time. I ma- always made good grades because it was fairly easy for me, but I, I wasn't somebody who clamored to learn. I was much more interested, I think, in being with my friends and just kind of living as a teenager. But I do feel that by the time I was going to college, that for women in that generation, it was much more to get our MRS degree, which means Mrs., you know, to oh marriage. gosh, right.
0: I was like sitting there truly going... MRS. It must be nursing? MRS. Or? What
1: is, MRS? <laughs> <Yeah. This> is <laughs>
0: Right. No, of course. Of course. But we
1: use that kind of as a, as a sign of what was sort of expected of us. And it was always, particularly in our socioeconomic area, that if you marry and when you marry and you have children and if something happens to your husband, you will have something to fall back on which was either at that time mostly teaching or nursing. So it wasn't that we felt like we could just go into any area for our life. And it was really interesting, you know, when you think of a Ruth Bader Ginsburg or you think of people who delve deeply into medicine or into research or or somebody who went into engineering, a woman who went into engineering at that time, That was the exception rather than the rule. And so I was not exceptional at that time. I rather went more with the rule at that time.
0: So are there any notable life events prior to your collegiate years that are deeply important to your life story or your spiritual story? I know that you... Contracted polio at one stage in your younger years. I don't remember what year that was. That's true. What
1: happened was, you know, as far as structure of my life, if you go back to ninth grade, I again was sent away to a Catholic boarding school. This time to one in Boulder, Colorado. And that's when I fell in love with the Catholic Church, and it was the same order of nuns. And because uh, I was such a pill. My parents and a few other parents at that time decided that we should go to boarding schools. So my father called the nuns at Mount Carmel in Wichita, where I had gone in the first grade, and asked if they had a boarding school in Colorado because he had branch offices in Colorado. And we had a summer place up in the mountains in Colorado. And so I was sent out there and fell in love with the nuns and decided I wanted to be a Catholic, I wanted to be a nun. And two years after my sophomore year, my parents realized that I had gotten the Catholic bug and that I should be pulled out of there and put back in the public school again. (laughs) Amazing! So your,
0: your, your calling to follow into the convent was viewed negatively by your parents.
1: Oh, terribly. I mean, my, my father thought that nuns were really good disciplinarians, but he, de- <laughs> he detested Catholicism, basically.
0: Right, I mean, in the classic, like, whatever denomination hates another denomination kind of thing.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and it was that day and age when I can even remember, you know, public school kids would look at Catholic school kids and we'd say, oh, those are the Catholics.
0: Wow, yeah.
1: And it was just that separation of Protestantism and Catholicism at the time. My father also, he was a businessman, but he loved history. And I think that there was a lot in the history of the Catholic church in earlier eras that really appalled him. And I think also the feature of a pope being able to be over a whole group of people rather than an independent type of religion bothered him. And there was one time when I really, my father never came to church with us at all. It was mother that always got us up and got us to Sunday school and church on on Sundays. But there were two times when I got an insight into my father And it was very brief both times, but very telling. The first time was when my mother had to have a hysterectomy. Mm. And my father came to me and said, do you have a Bible? Wow. So that he could read something or pray for my mother, I guess. I mean, he was worried about her surgery. And that was the extent of it. I gave him the Bible and he went into his bedroom and sat on his bed and read whatever he read. And that was that. I mean, I, and nothing else was said. The other part was very, very telling because in my freshman year in college, I turned 18. And at the time, the Catholic Church required that you be rebaptized if you had been baptized in a Protestant church, which I had been, and I was baptized by immersion. Mm. when I was about 10 years old. So anyway, instead of going ahead and being baptized right in St. Louis, where I was in school, I came home. So my mother said, you go down and talk to your father at his office. And evidently he said, don't send her down here. I'm afraid of what I'll do. Wow. But His office, he had a big corner office and with windows all around. And I clearly remember him going over to the windows and saying something to the effect, and I have no idea really what the exact words were, but it was something to the effect that he did not believe in basically an organized religion, but he did believe in a transcendent power of some kind or another. He didn't go into it that much more. And I think I was so afraid of what he might say or do or anything that I don't recall any more than that. But I do remember him looking distantly out his window and deeply saying those words. So I went ahead and was baptized. But that was the last time I saw my father because he died a month later of a heart attack. And I remember saying goodbye to him. You know, I knew how disappointed or, or upset he was with my choice of becoming a Catholic, but it was a good goodbye in the sense that I saw something in him that I had never seen really before. And those are the only two instances where I really saw what you would call the spirituality of my father.
0: Wow, Judy, what a powerful moment and what a, what a wonderful story. So when he goes to Colorado, then on that goodbye, it's a few weeks later, he's still working, Colorado doesn't return, and then you hear word that he's died? Is that what you're saying? Yeah,
1: I got a call in the morning. And, and then my poor mother at that time They were building a new home, and they had already sold the house when he died. So my mother was in the middle of building a house that was going to be much bigger than what she'd want. So we all kind of lived in a duplex for the summer while we were home from school, and she was building this other house. And that's when I contracted polio. And so my mother had the death of my father, the building of a house, me getting polio, it's kind of like what's happening in the country right now, you know, of everything falling down all at once. Yeah. So anyway, they felt that I would never use my right side again. But again, because I was determined, I was able to use my right side again. But we'll talk about the loss of my leg later. But fortunately, it was my bad polio leg that was knocked off rather than my good leg. So at least I have one good leg left. Yeah,
0: Judy. That is couldn't be a more perfect point to pause and leave the listener with a cliffhanger (laughs) we'll take a, a very short break and we'll get right back into the next stage of your exciting life journey in just a minute times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Dr. Judy Mayott. We left off in the part of the story where she... Contracts polio at a young age, but she also intimates that later in life she will lose her leg. This is a part of the story that I knew would happen. I don't want to jump to that point yet, but I do want to start again with where you're at in your story about polio. You know, when you're talking about your baptism, your rebaptism, is that under the idea that you were already going to be on your way to the convent, or is that just an indication of your swelling love for the Catholic Church?
1: I wanted to be a nun, but I couldn't become a Catholic until I was 18 without permission from my parents. And I couldn't become a nun until I was 21 without permission from my parents. January of my freshman year in college is when I turned 18, and then it was that summer I was doing a lot of water shows, a lot of competitive swimming. I was also going through rush for a sorority. So they had to empty all those swimming pools that I was in. And everybody I'd been in contact with had to get globulin shots, which I think were almost as bad as the disease itself from what I understand. Wow. So anyway, I was in the hospital for a long time, and it took me a long time to learn to walk again. Then after... When I could go back to school, I went to Oklahoma University, and for no particular reason. I have to
0: ask, were you not interested in romance at all at that young age? Oh,
1: we we went steady. And actually, I had a boyfriend in college that I had known in Colorado for years. (laughs) My younger sister and her friends broke their piggy bank put me on a train to go out and see it for one last time, you know, oh, <laughs> hoping sweet. that I could change my mind. <laughs> and I remember them going down to a train station in Wichita and putting me on that night train that went to Colorado. And so, no, I, I dated and, and I dated at OU. It was a different time than now. You know, it yeah. was um, it was a stricter regime. But no,
0: I dated. But nonetheless, you're you're still consumed with a passion to pursue becoming a nun? Yes. You're not deterred. The money unfortunately went to waste. It didn't serve the purposes <laughs> that they were hoping for, breaking their piggy their bank. Piggy
1: bank. <laughs> <laughs> so, I did enter the nuns in 1958, and there were 75 of us that entered that year, the BVMs, which is just one order in the United States. And it was a it was a time when there was a groundswell of people entering the convent. The year before, there were over 100. The next year, after our 75 that we entered with, there were 120 or so. Wow. And so the mother house was just bulging with young people. And I loved the novitiate, uh, the postulancy of the novitiate. And Most of us from that group that entered together, even though the majority of us left the nuns after, you know, at a variety of times during those years because of Vatican II, we're still in touch with one another. And we've had reunions. Our last reunion was 60 years after we had entered the convent. And you know, and when someone dies or someone's sick, we have a an email. Uh, that goes out to all of us, so we're all able to respond. So all these years later, there was a bonding, even though it was still the days when there was great silence most of the time. And I know our our novice mistress would take us out through the fields so that we could just let off all of our energy and yell and shout and do whatever you know whatever young people do. And most of them were right out of high school. There were only a few of us that had had any college education. And of course, I was really basically two years behind in college simply because I lost those years with polio. Judy, I have a
0: a question. It's a two-part question. One is, what were your reasons and or hopes and dreams that you would accomplish when you were entering the novitiate? And what are you referencing when Vatican II happened it sounds like you're referencing Vatican II as a reason why it was the beginning of the end for many of you being there, if I'm interpreting that correctly. And why yes. and why is that? Can you tie those two things together?
1: You know, I think, and many of us have talked about this together. I think many of us entered with an idea of how can we serve? And that was one way that young women could serve, young Catholic women could serve at that time. We didn't have the Peace Corps yet. We didn't have a lot of the um, NGOs had not flourished in the way that they have today, like the International Rescue Committee or Save the Children or some of those, you know, Catholic Relief Services or Jesuit Services, you know, internationally or nationally. Hmm. And so it was one way to be of service. And there was also the deep religious, spiritual reasons for entering, you know, wanting a life of prayer, wanting a life of it just worked with my personality and it worked with many personalities. Vatican II, with John the 23rd, as he said, opened the doors and windows of the church. And I think that we begin to see that there were other ways to do service and to be able to do it not in the regimented ways. And as Vatican II unfolded, so too did the relaxation of much that had been a part of our convent life. Uh, We went back to our own names. I was Sister Mary Vivia during the time that I was a nun, nun. and then when I was teaching in Kansas City, I went back to Sister Judith Ann. And then we went out of our habits, the long habits and the long veils and all of that, at about the same time. (laughs) And, of course, our first clothing that we wore were these dowdy—I know my sister always said, you look like a dowdy old lady, Uh, (laughs) hear me, which I did. And then after those kinds of suits that we put on, we went in just to regular clothes and regular dress— And some of the nuns and priests did fall in love with each other and and married and have had very happy lives. I mean, the ones I know have had tremendous lives and have remained service-oriented in their married lives and in the raising of their children. And others of us just simply decided it was time to leave and do something else. And that, that was what happened to me. It just wasn't right for me anymore. And I knew it. And that was 10 years later. I loved my time there. I loved the nuns. I have stayed in touch. I'm grateful they made us strong women. They believed in us. It was a a progressive order that moved ahead with the times, and we became strong, professional women as well as religious women living in a religious order. So, you know, I didn't leave because I was mad or anything like that. I just felt like it wasn't right anymore. And I didn't know where I was going to go with it. I, I didn't have any idea, though I had been accepted already into the master's doctoral program in the theology department at Marquette University.
0: Yeah, so this is how you find your way there.
1: That's how I found my way to Marquette the first time. And of course, when you leave the convent, you leave without any money. You don't have a lot of clothes. You don't have a lot of anything. (laughs) My older sister gave me quite a few clothes and I got them altered and wore those. But
0: they all broke their piggy banks again to just put you back in some clothes. Now they're like, yeah, we got a second chance. (laughs) Let's
1: get her her some romance. Well, I even remember on my first date after I left the convent was to a dance. And I even remember some parents of friends of mine just kind of gawked at me because there she was, the former nun on a date. Extraordinary. (laughs) It It was just funny. So anyway, then I, of course, needed money. I needed a head resident in fact, when I was head resident, this was real, it was just so interesting to be on that campus in the vitriolic 60s because we were dealing with civil rights and with Vietnam at that time. And I had marched at that time too at night. And I can remember the Milwaukee police at different times. If we were on the sidewalks, that was considered peaceful protesting. But, but if we went off into the streets it was considered illegal. And sometimes the police with their batons would try to push us into the street, you know, so that they could arrest people. Wow. And so I it was really, you know, I wouldn't change having been on the campus in those days.
0: Judy, there's so much that I want to hear about your life. There's so much more that we need to get to about your international work. But hearing you talk about your time in Milwaukee in the 60s during the Civil Rights era, comments about transgressions by the police. I have to ask, what were those marches like that you were in? Were they multiracial? Was there a lot of violence? Were you seeing violence? And you know, how does that tie into you being one of these individuals that has the ability to see a perspective and connect it to what you're seeing around you today?
1: Yes, it was multi, the protests were multiracial. But another aspect that I think brings me to today was that within Harity Hall, many of the African-American women who attended Marquette at that time lived in Harity, And we had conversations around race and what it meant. And so those were listening conversations. They exposed so much at that time. And I think when I transfer that to today, both the external marching, and the external protests that I was part of, and those conversations within Herity Hall, the need for exquisite listening to our brothers and sisters of color today is so very critical. We have to hear. We have to listen. We have to understand and I think that that is what these protesters are asking for, is to be heard so that we can make transformative changes that are going to make a difference. And I do feel that this may be, just may be the time when we really do turn a corner and make some of those transformative, substantive systemic changes, getting at the root of this on the ground and being suffocated, it is a symbol of the suffocation of so many people of color over the generations. And we have to move to another time. And it is going to take an exquisite listening and a changing of what Warren Zimmerman, our last ambassador of the former Yugoslavia said, changing the borders of our minds, Mm -hmm. changing the way that we think about and live with one another. And we have to do that now.
0: What is it like emotionally for you to see this moment 50 years after or 60 years after what is last kind of identified as the last national moment of recognition?
1: You know, I think with the convergence now of the coronavirus, the economic downturn, and these protests, that it is going to be one of those historical moments when there is a turning. And whether it's a turning as far as minorities are concerned, as people of color are concerned. It's a turning as far as our lifestyles are concerned. I think that many of us have seen that we can live more simply simply because we've had to shelter in place for these last two and a half months. I find it a time of opportunity and I find it a time of hope. If we can have the moral and political will to move ahead with the radical changes that we have to make in our lifestyle, in our relationships with one another, in embracing the whole of humanity, moving forward together.
0: Well, Judy, thanks. There's a lot left to your story. I appreciate you speaking about this. It's something that's weighing heavily on everyone's mind, mine, you know, as well. But there's so much more to hear about your refugee work in the world, your climate work in the world. There's a long story ahead and we got to do it in a relatively short amount of time. So we'll do that when we get back after the break.
1: I'll talk fast.
0: (laughs) God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one-to-two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners, and it means a lot to me, because I read them, and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back with Judy. It's our last segment. We left off with Judy. She was achieving her doctorate in theology at Marquette, after she had left the convent. And as we spoke about off mic, this is the time where you meet the man that would become your husband.
1: I do, I met wonderful Jack Mayott. Jack was with Square D Electric, which is an old Milwaukee company. He was the regional director, I guess, at the time. And because of my lack of money coming out of the convent, I also needed summer jobs. So I would teach at wales which is wisconsin schools for boys which is the highest security prison for male juveniles in wisconsin had a wonderful time doing that and then for the few weeks after that i got a a job out at square d and so i met mr mayot and i called him mr mayot and (laughs) it's a long story and a beautiful love story and i'm not going to go into all of it but anyway Later, he and his wife, he had been made international vice president of the company and had moved down to Chicago. And one day he was driving and he came to talk to me out of the blue. And I don't know why or how or anything. And he talked to me about the breakup of his marriage. And so then he went on his way. And I thought, well, that's. So you were
0: working for him. He saw you, and it's almost like he just needed someone who could he could talk to. He
1: did. He just needed, he needed an ear, and he was just driving that day. And later, he called up and he said, do you suppose we might have dinner one evening? Well, when you're running a dorm, you can only be about 15 minutes away from the dorm. Oh, so wow. our courtship was <laughs> either in the dorm or 15 minutes away for dinner. You <laughs> you're know, eating on Mar- like
0: Marquette campus all the time. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, there was a point at which he was bringing me back from our 15 minutes away and he said, I've turned a corner that I never expected to turn or planned on turning, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life without you. And wow. so I guess I sort of realized. I thought, well, I don't think I want to spend my life without you either. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I was really, I wasn't really thinking in terms of of marriage, really, or anything like that. But it happened so quickly with us, and we married very shortly after that. And then he, unfortunately, and we lived in Chicago. He unfortunately died very quickly of cancer three years later. He, oh. it was exactly six weeks from the day of prognosis to the day of his death. And he died in my arms at home Uh, and we planned his funeral together. And he said, now you're going to be an emotional widow. And so don't make any big changes for at least a year, you know, stay in our home here for at least a year before you make other changes. And he was beautiful in the way that we were able to walk into his death together we had a beautiful last rites, uh, and one of his daughters was home for that, Trancy. And you know, it was it, it was a beautiful um, it was a beautiful goodbye. And he made such a difference in my life. He was so deep and so beautiful and so caring. It was just it was a joy to be married to him.
0: Oh, Judy! My goodness.
1: So Milwaukee, Milwaukee holds a lot of history for me, uh, you know, with Marquette, with Jack, with going back and teaching at Marquette, and, and just so much. I mean, Milwaukee is a place that, um, that means a lot to me.
0: Wow: OK. So we'll go with where Jack tells you you leave off, which is, yeah, are you an emotional widow? Are you struggling for a year? How long does it take for you to get your bearings after the whirlwind that has just happened to you in your life? I mean, I can only imagine your story. I mean, looking at it from the outside, it's extraordinary. You spent more years in, in the convent than you did married. Yes. By the time you're there, it it's it's like it just vanishes in a way. And... Yeah. Where does that leave you at that point? I mean, I know where you go. In my head, I'm like, gosh, what an interesting move. But how do you get there? How do you end up becoming the person that becomes internationally recognized as a leading humanitarian?
1: Well, I'll say that Jack Mayotte would love the trajectory of my life. He would laugh because he was always thinking I was an absent-minded professor and I was gonna get hit going across Wisconsin (laughs) Avenue and Milwaukee, but nevertheless. (laughs) My life changed dramatically, I will say. But yes, I grieved. I grieved for his loss. I would go out to his grave and, you know, buried in snow in Chicago and trudge up that little hill to his gravesite and, and everything. But I had a lot of friends, and I had really good friends who, one of them said, You can't be a young widow. I was in my 30s. You can't be a young widow and live out in a suburb. So I decided, okay. I bought a condo downtown, and I decided then that I thought, hmm, I, you know, I don't think I want to stay in the 16th century, which was what my PhD was in. It was mm. 16th century reformation thought. I think I want to go into television, knowing nothing about television or anything. <laughs> but, but I happen to live two doors down from John Callaway in Chicago, who probably is one of the best interviewers that I have ever known. And I was walking home with two bags of groceries one day, and I've never stopped anybody on the street before like that. But John was walking down the street, and I stopped and I just said, oh, I really, really enjoy your program. It was on Chicago's public television. And so John and I started talking, and it turned out that he lived a few doors down from me. And so John and I got to be friends, and I told him I wanted to go, and I thought I wanted to go into television and he said oh no he says you know that's too doggy dog he said it's too aggressive for you stay in academe and i thought well i don't want to and so <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds about right with like, your story judy that sounds about right <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so anyway we were eating dinner one night and, and he said and john didn't have a neck he, it just his chin just kind of went down to his his chest <laughs> and uh, and he said now judy he said we're creating this new position at WTTW, and I want you to go talk to Ira Miskin, our executive producer, about this. And I said, John, you told me not to go into television. I said, what is this? And he said, well, this is different. You'll be working with me. I didn't know anything about television. And so I went down to that little Columbia College that Thane Lyman had this wonderful technical school on television producing. And so I thought, I better take a course down there And then Ira was asked to come down to Atlanta to run this series called Portrait of America for Turner Broadcasting. And that was uh, narrated by Hal Holbrook. And this was just when CNN was in the basement of this old clubhouse that they had. We were on the first floor and Turner and his offices and his people were on the third floor of that thing. And that was way before, I mean, that was just when CNN was starting. The backyard was filled with satellite dishes. And so we did that series down there in Atlanta.
0: For which you won an Emmy.
1: I did win an Emmy, yes. And it was there that I decided I wanted to work with refugees. And Nicholas, I have not the foggiest notion, always in my free time. You know, whenever I was working, I would work with homeless or in the inner city in some way or another and did that during the time I was a nun as well. But there was something in me that just decided I wanted to work with refugees. And I, to this day, do not know where it came from. And so I just left Turner Broadcasting and I thought I wanted to do it through a faith community. So I joined the Mary Knoll sisters and was going to go overseas. And I have a heart condition that kicked up at the time. And my doctor said "You." Can, I was going to go to Somalia.
0: I mean, you didn't become a nun again.
1: Yeah, I was becoming a nun again. And I really... Wow. It, because it, <laughs> your story
0: is just wild. Wow, yeah. Jeez.
1: And to this day, I'm still, you know, I still call Mary Knoll sort of a second home for me. You know, wow. I, I'm close to him, but I did not stay. I did receive a very, very generous grant from the MacArthur Foundation to write disposable people, the plight of refugees. And it again transformed my life. It changed everything for me. I never planned to write. I never planned to be a public speaker. I never planned to be an advocate. I never planned to do any of those things. And it was a transformation that made all the difference. And about that time when I was going, you know, when I was going in and out of war zones and refugee camps around the world to write this, because the book itself, I decided on three, I decided to look at long-term refugees, people who had lived in refugee camps for 10, 12, 15 years, you know, and children were born and grew up there in the camps. Um, And so I chose the Cambodians in the camps along the Thai-Cambodian border, the Afghans in Pakistan, and then the Eritreans in Sudan. And I was one of the first people at the time, there was also a civil conflict going on in Sudan itself. And many of the people fled the South in Sudan to the North. And I became one of the first ones really to write about internally displaced civilians. Who are not officially legally refugees because they have not crossed an international border, wow. and they are still under the regimes that are trying to put them to death. Wow. Uh, you know, I mean, national sovereignty, we're we're a world of nation states. And so national sovereignty, as I think I talked about in our course on human rights. Yes, but you ago. could probably,
0: I could probably use a refresher. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> but you're absolutely
0: right. This is, this is the course I took from you. This is amazing. Okay, That's continue, right. continue.
1: Yes, yes. So I was one of the first to write on, on that. Well, during the time that I was writing and going in and out of war zones and living among the refugees while I wrote the book, the Women's Refugee Commission was also starting up, and that was Catherine O'Neill and Liev Olman. Liev Olman is a famous Swedish film star. So they were on the board of the International Rescue Committee, which is one of the premier organizations and an organization that I had worked with as I went into the refugee camps. Bob Gavecki, who was the president of the IRC, told his people out in the field, this woman is coming watch out for her take care of her Mm. and so i was able through the international rescue committee which was founded during world war ii that's a whole story in itself getting the the jewish people out and over the pyrenees or out of marseille so that they wouldn't be killed the international rescue committee is active it works in the camps it is a humanitarian organization the women's refugee commission became a refugee advocacy organization basically for women and children. And so they gathered a group of us together in founding that organization. And because we didn't have any money, we had to go out and do our fact-finding missions on our own as a board. You know, we were doing this all by the feet of our pants. And now it has grown into one of the premier refugee advocacy organizations. It's very well known and just does magnificent work. But it was fun to be part of that founding group of that organization. And so I ended up in my work more as an advocate who would then continue as, as I wrote my book. And then I would continue to go out on fact-finding missions and come back. And we would testify before congressional committees, write op-ed pieces, go on programs like the News Hour with Jim Lehrer or Charlie Rose or those things. And so we would speak out and then we would advocate within the government, within the United Nations organizations, particularly UNHCR, and try to make changes in the camps that would make a difference as far, particularly of women and children, for the Women's Refugee Commission. And Refugees International was really known for being some of the first ones in on the ground to see what was happening when conflict arose in a country. And so that was what I continued to do. And then there was a group called the Visionaries. And they were doing filming of different humanitarian organizations or they were just starting up. And so they got in touch with Refugees International. And I was always saying, nobody really talks about the conflict in Southern Sudan, about the civil war in Southern Sudan. And it was one of the most brutal Situations. I mean, you know, the weapons of war were as much the withholding of access to food and medical care as guns and mortar because they could just kill the people by starving them to death or by having them die from preventable diseases. And they would push humanitarian workers out of southern Sudan. Sometimes we would go in clandestinely under the radar of government planes so they wouldn't shoot us down to be able to get the story that was in there. And I remember meeting at one point with a group of midwives, Kathleen Jacobs and I went in, and we met with this group of of midwives who didn't even have a clean razor blade with which to cut the umbilical cord in the birthing process. And one of the questions that I asked of the woman, uh, women, I said, You know, what is it you would like for me to take back to the United States? What do you want me to say if I testify before Congress? Or, and I'll never forget the words of one woman Tell them we are tired of running, running from bombardments, massacres, and starvation. We gather our children and try to find a place to hide. We look for water. And we try to stay a while, but then the guns break the silence and we have to run again. And I have never forgotten those words that that woman said, because that is the story of so many people, and particularly internally displaced civilians, that they have to run over and over and over again. If we look at Syria today, if we look at Yemen today, if we look at any of the places where there is this kind of of conflict that is going on, the people are constantly running and trying just to secure their lives and the lives of their children. Today, we have over 70 million, over 70 million people who are fleeing conflict. And that's not all that people are fleeing today. People are beginning to flee more and more from extreme weather events. And so we're gonna have millions more if we don't change our ways as far as climate is concerned, that we're going to have more and more people who are going to be displaced because of extreme weather events. We can already see this, for example, in Alaska, in our own country, where the permafrost is melting yes. and there's so much erosion on a lot of the banks that a lot of the villages, that the fishing villages that are along those banks of Native Americans, indigenous people, are just falling into the water. You know, you're going to have to move whole villages, whole towns. And in our day and age, it's not a matter of moving tents or other movable kind of habitable places, but it's moving clinics, it's moving schools, it's moving city halls, it's moving homes that are, are stably built. You know, when you think of 78 million people who are fleeing conflict now, and you think of the millions more that are going to be, that are and are going to be moving because of climate displacement, it's going to be an upheaval like we have never known in our in our existence, the world's existence before.
0: Oh, Judy, thank you for sharing that. I am left in a moment here where I want to just—you have a, obviously can speak to so many things. I want you to tell the story. We're right at that moment. I, if I'm correct, it's the visionaries that are recording while you're injured, right? Yes. So you could spend another show just talking about your thoughts and your reflections and your work on climate catastrophe that we're facing. I don't want it to seem trivial to move back to your personal story, but I do want to get to this part of your story, which is the loss of your leg up in, in, <laughs> amidst all of this work, this change, another tragic and life-defining event happens to you.
1: Indeed, it did. Up in the little village of Ayod in in southern Sudan, what was then southern Sudan before it became south Sudan. Anyway, I always wanted the story of Sudan to be told. We were going to a feeding center in this little village of Ayod. And when I had been there before, we called it the starvation triangle of Boer, Congor, and Ayod. And you could go to a village and there wouldn't be a child under five alive, practically. Maybe there had been a measles outbreak and they had died from that or they had died from dysentery. Uh, You could go other places in that area and you could see that there weren't any cattle left because of the drought and and because of the lack of of being able to plant and harvest and, and have feed for the cattle. So anyway, we were going into this village of Ayod on this particular morning, and we were going to film a food drop. And i have been to dozens of food drops over the years. And a food drop is a big area. It can be as big as three football fields, for example. And the danger in a food drop is if the bags drop too short or too long. In other words, that if there were people at the end of it, you know, at one end or the other end, and the plane dropped too soon or, or too late, that it could hit the people. So we were always instructed to go off to the side, and we went exactly where the plane told us to go that morning, where the pilots go that morning. Ordinarily, um, the planes would come out of Lokotokyo, which was the base camp just on the Kenya border with Sudan, and bring the bags of grain in and drop them. But you also use the wheat from the sorghum from the Sudanese government itself, which was the right thing to do, you know. That morning, it was a Russian pilot flying an Aleutian, a Russian Aleutian plane uh, that was dropping the, the grain on the drop that we were attending. So we went off to where the pilots told us to go, and exactly, and then even the pilots asked us to move further, east or whatever direction it was which we did and so then the world food program people who were with us on the ground gave the okay for the pilots to drop and they had made two test runs around the field and then the world food program gave the okay to drop on the ground and we could see that it was coming right at us it wasn't going where the drop site was it Mm. was just flying and so um I can't say the word on on air, uh, but holy uh, (laughs) shit. Well, you actually
0: could say it if you wanted to.
1: (laughs) One of the World Food Program people said it. So we all started running. And um, the camera person actually felt like if he looked up, he could see where the bags were coming from. But being a camera person, he also lifted his camera up in the air. And so he saw, so you have in the film, you see all the bags coming down around us. And so we were all just running for our lives, you know, because it was they were just coming right at us. I mean, these are 200 pound bags. Yeah. Falling from how many feet? 120 feet in the air. So they were going at a good clip by the time they hit the ground. Yes, you would be killed. Yeah. And if it had hit my head, I wouldn't be here on this show this morning. Thank you very much. My goodness. But uh, but I must have tripped or something. I don't know what, what happened. But anyway, it hit my leg and knocked it to smithereens, wow. um, my right leg which again was my polio leg so that was the good thing about it there's it evidently was a hole in the ground where the bag hit uh. and so they came and then these wonderful soldiers you know they had their kalashnikovs on and their you know all their guns and everything with them somebody ran into the feeding center fortunately a doctor from unicef asked at the last minute if she could come with us uh, because she wanted to go to the feeding center there in the village. And so Bernadette, came. They somebody ran and got Bernadette and she came out to the field and the, the soldiers brought an old army cot out to the field and they took their Kleschnikos of off and, and put them on the ground and, and raised me above and carried me through the field. And because we would go in and out of the war zone every day, because we couldn't stay all night in the war zone, the plane was waiting for us on the dirt strip anyway. And so they put me on that and they took me down then to a tool shed in at Locococchio, where the ICRC, the International Committee for the Red Cross Doctors, came over because they knew I was bleeding to death and that they were losing me. And so they knew that they needed, they couldn't get, they, they wouldn't have time to get me to the ICRC hospital. They needed to set up a, a mini operating theater in this tool shed at Lokotokyo. Wow. And so they, they stabilized me in the tool shed and then called in another C 130 from another food drop that hadn't dropped yet. And so they carried me over the bags of grain on that plane and got me to Nairobi. And the, the Kenyan doctor in Nairobi saved my upper leg. And so I got all this metal in me. So then they medevac me back to Mayo Clinic. And that's where they amputated my leg then.
0: I mean, you've got to fly. I mean, how long is they medevacing you? What is this? Like it's a 12-hour flight?
1: Yeah, it was. Um, the U.S. Embassy arranged all of this. Swiss Air at the time would take critical patients. And so they had me on a stretcher. And then SOS is a medevac, you know, one of your international insurance programs that you have. That's what we use for the students down at the, in South Africa, you know, the Marquette program down there. Anyway, a doctor and nurse from SOS came with me. So we went as far as Geneva, where we had to change planes to get to Chicago. Then a Mayo Clinic plane flew down from Rochester, Minnesota, to pick me up. And because of this horrible storm that was going on, they ended up having to land at Midway. And so they had to take me in an ambulance across town at rush hour in Chicago, you know, to get me into the Mayo Clinic plane. And then the Mayo Clinic plane took me back up to to Rochester, Minnesota. The rest is history from there. What's really interesting in that, each time that something has happened to me, there's been a new unfolding of my life. And this was no different. And I thought, what in the world am I going to do now? Because I loved what I was doing, just like I loved being married to Jack Mayotte. I loved what I was doing in in all of this work and, you know, overseas with the refugees. And I thought, well, I'll just get another leg and I'll be able to go on. Well, Not too long after that, I fell and broke the hip of that same leg. And I also, because it was my bad polio leg, and because also because the knee won't bend and everything, I really couldn't wear a prosthetic device. And so I was sort of in a mess. And I thought, well, what do I do now? And then I was asked to go into the Clinton administration, the first Clinton administration, as a special advisor on refugee issues and policy. And so while there, What really changed more than anything else, because government is not my gig, really, but Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies often had people from government come in and teach. And so they invited me in to teach a course on refugee issues and policy. And I thought, I can't teach theology, but I sure can teach on this. And that's how I ended up leaving government and going to Seattle University, which is a Jesuit school, to teach there, and then coming to Marquette to teach, and starting in both schools, international service learning programs, one for Seattle University and one in South Africa for Marquette. And so in a certain sense, I was getting older anyway. I wasn't a young thing anymore. And I was able to pass on what I had gained overseas to a new generation. And you took my class on human rights, the evolution and theory of human rights. And so I was able to teach on refugee issues and policy and on sub-Saharan African history. And I was able to start those service learning programs. And so it's such a privilege. I've had such a privileged life and it's unfolded in uncanny ways. And now to be working on climate issues because of climate displacement at 83 to be in a whole new world on that is just I mean it, it is so exciting to be alive and such a privilege to be alive and to be able to do things that just unfold and sort of drop in my lap.
0: Judy, it's an amazing story, and it's so wonderful to hear you tell it. Your enthusiasm for life, your indomitable spirit feels right. It's really impactful for me, even on just the, the base level of, of demonstrating examples of how life brings an impenetrable change, a change that cannot be ignored to your life trajectory. And that in it, you know, your quote is, each time something happened, you know, there was a new unfolding. And what a beautiful what a beautiful story to hear you not only do that once or twice, but to have three or four of these life-changing events and to see how it brought you a new unexpected joy is, I think, deeply inspiring. And what an extraordinary story you tell and how cool that you're now working in what is one of the cutting edge problems of the day. And like you said, the greatest threat maybe of our existence as humans.
1: It really is. You know, I worked with Archbishop Tutu down in, in South Africa, too, when I was down there. And, his, you know, that whole communal philosophy, um, we need that so much at this time, not only for climate, but for the pandemic that we're having, for the racial issues that we're having. You know, I lived in South Africa for eight years after I started the program for Marquette. And the African notion of Ubuntu, that to me, it means that we are human. Because I am human because you are human, that we are interdependent, that we are interconnected, that we We are family. We belong to one another. That is such a trademark, you might say, of of Archbishop Desmond Tutu and of Nelson Mandela and that that communal spirit and that belonging to one another. And and that is so incarnational. That is, you know, that's what Jesus is all about. That is the beauty of Christianity and of Judaism and, and of Islam And the gift that I had to be among all those religions uh, as I was traversing the refugee arena and as I lived in South Africa and to be able to live in a place where there was that change that came about through reconciliation, through restorative justice in South Africa that we need to bring about racially here in our own country— We need that deep spirituality. We need that lesson of Ubuntu, of all of our belonging together, of our interdependence, of our interconnection. And we need that as we look at climate, which, as you said, is the greatest crisis that is coming to us. And we need it as we go through the racial divides that have been here in the United States. We need to come together and show our interconnection and our interdependence. We need to have
0: a nurturing spirit. Judy, it has been an honor. I, I remember being deeply impressed with you when I was 21, and now I'm, <laughs> now I'm 40, and I'm even more impressed because I'm sure I didn't get it uh, totally back then. I got it as a 21-year-old would get it, but I, I get it even more now. And all I can say is thank you for sharing in the way that you did. And thank you for your work. Thank you for what you're doing and the way that you've inspired so many people. And thanks for sharing. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Well, thank you for the work you're doing. And it really impresses me that a student of mine at one point in life uh, is doing the kind of wonderful work that you're doing. So great congratulations to you, Nicholas.
0: Oh, boy. Well, you, I'll take it, but I'm not sure I Oh, it's oh! I'm, I'm I'm all embarrassed now. I'm all a flutter. Um, <laughs> no, thank you so much. You're so kind, and I wish you nothing but continued joy and enthusiasm for living. And thank you, thank you for everything. Well,
1: thank you, and stay on for just a second because I want to ask you a couple of names.
0: Okay, wonderful. Um, so let me say goodbye to the show, and then we'll talk. Okay. 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 Thank you all for listening.